0: E-commerce aggregators have been in the business press lately. Aggregators are the firms that roll up e-commerce businesses and have been buying e-commerce brands right and left for the last couple of years. Well, they've been in the headlines because of trouble at one of the biggest aggregators, Thrasio. So I wanted to bring on someone with his finger on the pulse of e-commerce business acquisition. And the obvious choice was Joe Valley, a partner at Quietlight. Quiet Light is the well-regarded broker of e-commerce and other digital businesses. In this conversation, you're going to get a look back and a look forward at the market for e-commerce businesses. The white-hot market for them is cooling, so if you're interested in the category, good opportunities may become available in the months ahead. Also, I'm doing kind of a twofer on e-commerce. Tomorrow, I'll be publishing an interview with Alex Michael, who acquired an FBA business just a few months ago. So today's interview with Joe is a look at the e-commerce market, and tomorrow's with Alex is the story of a first-time e-commerce business buyer and how it's going for him. Hint, going awesome. One other thing, I want to plug Joe's own podcast, The Quiet Light Pod. Tons of valuable episodes for those of us interested in digital business, and e-commerce in particular. Joe is a great podcast host and, turns out, a great podcast guest as well as you're about to hear in this deep dive into the market for e-commerce businesses. Enjoy. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. What size of business should you buy? What can you afford? How much SDE or EBITDA does the business you acquire need to generate to pay off your loan, pay you the income you need, and reinvest in the business? Of course, the answer varies from person to person, so you need to answer this question for yourself. Chelsea Wood runs the Acquisition Lab and did a great interview on Acquiring mines just a few weeks ago. The lab is a do-it-with-you buy-side advisory service founded by one Walker Dybel, author of Buy Then Build. Chelsea's running a live session on this question, what size of business should you buy? She's worked with over 250 searchers who've gone through the lab, and this question comes up constantly. So at the live session, she'll explain how to arrive at the answer. Acquiring Minds is co-hosting it, so I'll be there as well, playing MC and taking notes. It's Wednesday of this week, Wednesday, June 22nd at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Register in the show notes. Joe Valley, thank you for joining me today on Acquiring Minds. Good to be here, Will. Thanks for having me, man. Joe, you're the owner of Quiet Light Brokerage, a name that regular listeners of Acquiring Minds will certainly know. Quiet Light is considered one of the highest quality brokerages of digital businesses, including e-commerce. So in your role at Quiet Light, you are really at the front lines of acquisition activity in e-commerce and a great person to discuss today's topic with. And that topic is this turmoil that we're hearing about seeing with the e-commerce aggregators and what that means for individual acquisition entrepreneurs, which is this this audience, the Acquiring Minds audience. Before we get into all of that, though, Joe, why don't you give us a little bit more of an intro on you, uh, if you would?
1: Sure. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur, just like everybody listening in the audience, if they currently are an entrepreneur, if they're hoping to be one. I was in that same situation once upon a time as well. Um, I started my first business, I think it was, God, I'm getting old now. It was 1997. I left a company that I had, I was the 34th employee. By the time I left, there were over a thousand and that was only in a two and a half year span. So it was amazing, awesome and awful at the same time. Uh, But I've been self-employed since 1997, launched my first product in 1998. I I, I owned a media buying agency for radio and then launched my first product on radio in 1998. Um, Eventually, uh, I did two TV infomercials with two different products, and the last one I took to uh, just 100% online in 2005. I took it through the best of and the worst of the economy, came out the other end of 2010, kind of tired, worn out, woke up one day and decided to sell my business. So I called the three online business brokerage firms that I could find. Um, and uh, thankfully, one of them was a guy named Mark Doust at Quiet Lights. And Mark's like, he gave... The, the other two were just trying to get their hooks into me for a commission, trying to get me to sign an engagement letter. Mark was like, well, look, based upon the review of your P&Ls, he actually requested them, reviewed them. He's like, I think... You know, if you could sell now, yes, but if you wait another six months based on your trends, you're easily going to make another six figures easily. Maybe, you know, instead of 600, another 100, maybe another 200,000, depends on the trends go. And I'm like, you're telling me to go away? He goes, it's in your best interest. Mm -hmm. And I loved the guy. I thought that was great. So Mm -hmm, I waited, mm -hmm. uh, came back. He didn't call me, didn't pester me, didn't anything. I, I reached back out in early October of 2010 and um, signed an engagement letter with Quiet Light. Mark was not my advisor, it was Jason Yellowitz, and we listed it and had it sold. I closed in, in uh, by the end of November. And then I, I took 2011 off trying to figure out what to do with my life, puttered around a little bit, did some things back in the media buying world, realized why I stopped it. And uh, I bought a business at a content site in April of 2012, and I joined Quiet Light at the same time. The content site, that I bought um, was hit by the Panda update. I, actually, I guess I bought it in, 2000, in, in March because it was hit by the Panda update, no, the Penguin update in April of 2012. So I, I had oh. something like 40 <laughs> glorious days, right? I, had, I bought, I sold a business that had amazing content. I had, had like 300,000 unique visitors a month. It was an e-commerce business. I sold physical products, but I, I always wrote good quality content. So I sold that and I bought a piece of crap uh, cause it was, I don't know. I thought I knew everything and I was dead wrong. Got hit with a penguin update. So I had six keywords on page one by um, 10 days afterwards, they were all on page two, then three, then four, mm-hmm. then five. And by the end of it all, uh, 10 months later, I, I was out, you know, $280,000. Oof. But it was a hell of a lesson, learned a lot and uh, really enjoyed the quiet light side of things. I um, loved being in the middle of transactions. And when I look back at my history, well, what have I excelled at? What have I been challenged with? I was challenged when it was just me, Google uh, PPC, and my developer, meaning that five-year stretch when all I was doing was promoting my my product online. That was hard. I didn't love it. It was painful. Mm-hmm. Um, my developer always wanted me to spend a whole bunch of money that he'd, he'd earned, and I didn't have the gut, the guts for it. Prior to that, when I was running my uh, media buying agency, I was in the middle of clients. I, you know, I'd buy media for my client on the buy side. It would go to the call center, and I, I was helping both parties. I was often mm-hmm. the intermediary be- between them both when they fought. Um, but their success was based on how well I bought media. Lo and behold, you know, I'm skipping, you know, a, a period of time from. 2005 up to 2012 when I I fall in that same role again but I didn't realize it until a few years ago when I was you know I had a business coach and looking at my strengths and weaknesses and what I excelled at and what I didn't I looked at the history of my entrepreneurship and it was being in the middle of transactions and helping people not hawking products or goods even though that's helping people too I just wasn't good at it but where I'm at now with Quiet Light, you know, it's a solid position. Mark and I became official business partners in 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got 15 advisors now and uh, the the famous Walker Diable <laughs> is on our team.
0: Well, if He's you weren't going to mention it,
1: I was going to mention it. <laughs> oh, I'm going to mention it all day long. You know, Walker, <laughs> I, I wrote the Exitpreneur's Playbook and Walker wrote Buy Then Build. Walker's probably sold 50,000 copies at this point. I've sold a 10th of that. And he lets me know that all the time. But I, I my <laughs> audience is much smaller. I'm on the sell side, right? And yeah. I was, I was to defend myself with, with statistics. <laughs> but uh, he's done a hell of a job, you know, helping people buy businesses for sure.
0: Well, as I said at, at uh, on our pre-call, you know, 90% of the people who sit in the chair that you're sitting in now, my guests, uh, not only have read Buy Then Build, but it was in many cases their entree into the whole, the whole concept, the whole world of buying a business. So
1: what we really need to do here, Will, is to get them to buy the playbook for the sell side. And I'm going to give it away here for free. So if anybody goes to exitpreneur.io forward slash acquiring minds, they can get the free digital version and read it on their Kindle, their Nook, their iBook or whatever it is. But it is the playbook for the sell side. So as mm-hmm. a buyer, why the hell wouldn't you want to have it? You know, I think Walker's mm-hmm. mm-hmm. book's amazing minus the typos. And I always have to mention that because <laughs> um, I going to give him a hard time. Um, but the sell side aspect of it, you know, when you're buying a business and you you're looking at something um, and you think, man, that multiple's a little high, but then you dig into the P and L, and like they didn't do a single ad back or they didn't do an ad back for their cash back money and I know how much they're spending on ads every month, you start to go, okay, no, well, that's a great price because they are giving me an ignorance discount because they didn't price it right. So mm-hmm. I'd say buy the, buy, the, uh, buy the playbook as
0: well. Two great Well, it, And it also just sounds like as a buyer of businesses that reading the Exitpreneur's uh, playbook would help will help me understand the psychology and the process of that uh, that the, the seller has been through or not been through, as the case may be, and just you know understanding the the, the psychology of the person across the table from me is really valuable.
1: Oh, there's no doubt, uh, you know, understanding the wants and needs of the seller is critical to getting what you want as a buyer. I've been in situations where I've had two. Equal offers. Uh, actually, I uh, talked about this earlier today with somebody. I sold a business, uh, several, three now, for a guy named Syed Balki. Syed runs Optin Monster. Sure. Um, huge. It's installed on like 10 million sites across worldwide, including um, acquiring minds. Inc- including acquiring minds. There you go. Yeah. So Syed had two offers, full price, uh, multiple million dollar offers uh, for this business I was selling for him. Uh, one offer was from a guy that was offering all cash. And he was really special and important and, uh, whatnot. All you had to do was ask him. And otherwise he was, a, in other words, he was a bit of a jackass because he had a lot of, <laughs> lot of cash. The other guy, um, researched Syed, learned where he went to school. Turns out that they went to the same college. So the guy made sure to wear a Gators hat. The first time he talked to Syed, um, and it is a Gators hat. I know I mentioned it was the wrong hat, the competing school. And then I had to wear the, the right hat on a <laughs> podcast when I had them both on. Uh, it's pretty funny. Um, I threw the hat away, Syed, in case you're listening. Um, but Syed chose the buyer that he liked, even though it was yeah. an SBA deal and 10 percent of the purchase price was going to be on a seller note with a two-year standby and then a five-year repayment period and a balloon payment that's how it was back then it's different today um, but the cash buyer was a bit of a jerk he was going to be difficult in due diligence and odds are he was going to try to renegotiate the purchase price for no good reason yep. and so yeah, syed said no i don't want to deal with that guy and the other guy a guy named nathan uh really w- w- understood that syed's team you know, he cared about them and they were going to transfer the sale. So Nathan honed in on that as well. So touch base in terms of making a connection in terms of where they went to school and really made sure Syed knew that transferring the team and keeping the team was something that Nathan absolutely wanted to do. And that got him the deal, even though he was offering a much less attractive offer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Being a good guy makes it, 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 it works. Totally. It's a great anecdote. And that theme comes up again and again, where buyers really have to keep in mind that they need to, they, even though they're the buyer, they need to sell themselves often to the buyer, particularly in a competitive situation like the one you just described. Just be nice. Just be
1: likable. Be inquisitive. Be helpful. Be kind. All of those things that your mother taught you, just be that way and it will help you acquire what you want to. <laughs> Just don't be an asshole.
0: What, I think there was another example of this with again circling back to Walker Dibel. Can you share that one?
1: Yeah. Can we just change his name to Tarzan though? Like Mini Tarzan because <laughs> of his hair. Now I mean, come on. All right. I, I harass him about his hair on every podcast that I know he might be, that he might be listening to. Um, so yes, um, years ago, I had a listing for sale, and Walker was a potential buyer. Um, he didn't. It, it was a somebody, a really nice all cash buyer ended up buying it. But Walker left an impression on me. It's the first time I, I'd ever talked to him and we had him on a buyer seller conference call. The seller really loved him, but you know, the other person was very nice as well. And it was an all cash deal versus, I think in that case, an SBA deal. About a month later, uh, my business partner, Mark, had a listing that came to him privately. He usually doesn't list businesses. And the seller of that business was really protective. She was concerned about listing the business publicly, even concerned about listing the business at all. So Mark reached out and said, look, I've got a seller that really is hoping we can just find a pocket buyer, but this buyer has to be somebody that's kind and trustworthy and likable. They can't negotiate you know, for, for, just for the sake of negotiating, so on and so forth. And immediately 30 days after i had talked to Walker, he popped to the forefront of my mind. And I introduced him to Mark and he ended up buying the business. And that was the uh, the toilet
0: business that he still owns mm-hmm. today. That, yeah, that he still owns today. We yeah. To, he'll, so he got that
1: it. just by being a nice guy. He didn't get it on the first one, right. but he got it randomly. Uh, he didn't go out looking for it. It was never listed for sale, but we reached out to him because he was
0: such a great buyer. Wow. Well, Today we're gonna to talk about um, not so great buyers. I, I think aggregators maybe don't have the best uh, reputation as buyers, but uh, I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves here. Joe, um, give us some, some context. So let's, let's assume that some of the people listening don't you know aren't up to their eyeballs in, in the e-commerce industry um, and may or may not even know what an aggregator is. So, so tell us what an aggregator is, what Thrasio is, and kind of this whole phenomenon that's been going on for the last few years. August Felker is a two-time successful searcher, first with a traditional search fund. The second time around, he did a self-funded search. Today, August runs Oberly Risk Strategies, an insurance firm with a dedicated practice group for searchers and acquisition entrepreneurs like you. If you've got a business under LOI, Oberly will provide complimentary due diligence on that business's insurance and benefits program—a great no-risk way to get to know August and team. They love helping searchers; they've worked with hundreds. Oberly is a specialty insurance brokerage for searchers by a former searcher. Check out oberly-risk.com, O-B-E-R-L-E-risk.com. Link in the show notes. All right, so uh, you mentioned Thrasia, so Carlos
1: Cashman, um, a couple of other guys that, that started that business, let's just hone in on them, or really go back a few years prior to that to a guy named uh, Richard or RJ Jalichandra. Um, an aggregator is somebody that is well, well-educated, Genre, I'm 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 making this up well educated <laughs> probably really good looking and incredibly charming and all three of those things enable them to raise a lot of money to buy fulfilled by amazon businesses initially um, but it also makes them dangerous because like wow these guys are really smart they can do amazing things with my business and you sell it to them and they they yeah so they roll up fba businesses is, is what they do so instead of you know, uh, a business that's doing $400,000 in discretionary earnings that might be worth $1.2 to $1.5 million, they own that one plus 20 more. So when they pull them all together, the multiple goes from three and a half to 12. Mm -hmm. And so by accumulating all of these different brands, their uh, combined value jumps dramatically because the multiple jumps dramatically first. Second, they've got combined resources to work on the brands where an owner might not have the tools or resources. And they've got incredibly deep pockets to theoretically never run out of inventory, which happens with almost every e-commerce entrepreneur that I've ever spoken to. And I say the- theoretically because it does happen. Um, so they've done an amazing job going back to 101 commerce, which was one of the originals. They ended up you know, the first call I had with Richard or RJ, um, he called me and said, this is the deal. This is what we're going to do. We're going to buy 101 FBA businesses in the next 24 months. And I said, you're crazy. It's not going to happen. Yeah. I said, it's not going to happen. And he said, yes, it is. And you know what? I'm not going to log into a single one of them. I said, you are not going to succeed, Richard. I'll help you however I can. But dude, there's not that many out there to buy. And there weren't back then. This might've been, 2015, 16, 17, I can't even recall now. And, and they ended up buying uh, 13, and um, the investors lost their faith in Richard, and they ended up selling to Goja. Now, there were three partners originally, talk about incredibly talented people like Walker Diable and I know I'm going on a tangent, so you bring me back in, Will, when you need to, but <laughs> it was Richard, a guy named Caith, C-A-I-T-H, really great guy, and a, guy named Chris, Chris Duty, Chris joined the Quiet Light team uh, recently, he joined the team in January. Great insight to the aggregator mindset. Um, and he's also partners in a very, very small percentage with another aggregator called Profound Commerce. But to answer your question, an aggregator is somebody that raises money to buy FBA businesses. And I say again, initially, because some of them are expanding. And they um, pool their resources to get more efficient and um, end up with a a much higher multiple. uh,
0: And so this one-on-one commerce, Mm -hmm. this was an early attempt at this that was, I guess... A failure, or, or certainly not the success that they were hoping for. I think they got and, their money back, but it, it okay. didn't, They didn't buy one hundred and one. They didn't sure. buy one hundred and one in twenty four months. Yeah, right. and then, but what has really put this on the map, I believe, of of the mainstream media. I mean, and and of Silicon Valley in general is, is Thrasio. Thrasio is now the oh, big yeah. name that's tossed around. And so, yep. what's the Thrasio story? When did it start? Um, and how big is it by comparison? I, I'm going to
1: go back. I think it might have been 2018. And uh, by the end of 2018, they had raised some money to buy FBA businesses. And I know that they had purchased 20, I think, altogether in 2018. And I might get the year wrong, but of the 20, eight of them were purchased from Quiet Light. So 40% of their purchases, we sold them. Um, So they owned 20 FBA businesses, and they got a second raise valuation at seven hundred and eighty six million dollars absolutely insane right I mean the businesses we were selling them were not large I think the largest they might have bought was one and a half or two million dollars back then um, but they just got an incredible valuation and that just started the ball rolling with other would-be aggregators um, and so they were just buying everything they could possibly buy and that's part of the problem they bought you know, um, children's toy brands. They bought uh, uh, you know umbrella brands. It's a German brand that I sold them. They bought um, mosquito brands. They bought things to clean your hands after working on a car. Anything they could yeah. get their hands on. Electronic yeah. charging stations, um, and they just bought them. And they've they really are the reason there's another hundred aggregators that are out there in the space today. Yeah, yeah, and they're good people. Uh, I, I, let me just let me just say this. They're actually really good people. They're getting a bad rap right now um, because they're, they're blowing up in terms of imploding, Uh, but they'll survive. They'll survive. Carlos is a smart guy. Ken's there. They're really, they're good people. They try to do the right thing. I've had deals with them where um, I, I literally had a deal under contract for an electronic charging station, like you plug it in during due diligence. The CFO of the company bought it and it, Plugged it in at home and it started to smoke and almost caught on fire. (laughs) They still closed the transaction. They worked hard to do that. The problem I have personally with aggregators marketing is that they say that they're going to buy it for all cash and close in 30 days and it's completely untrue. They don't close in 30 days with aggregators and they never pay all cash, or I should say most times don't pay all cash. They invented something called a stability payment. You Google it, you probably can't find it. And that's that, you know, well, this is a risky business. We need to hold back 10% in escrow for 12 months. And then as long as the business is within 90% of the revenue it was when we bought it, we'll release those funds. That's Mm -hmm. not all cash. That money sits Mm -hmm. in escrow for 12 months. Mm -hmm. Uh, They look for two months, Back then, they don't do as much now because of competition, but they look for a couple of months of working capital money held in escrow. That means you have $300,000 worth of inventory. That's three months worth. That's $200,000 that you're gifting them. You know, and the other thing they say is avoid the broker fee. If you had the broker, you wouldn't, get, you know, you wouldn't be gifting them $200,000 in um, inventory. But overall, they're good people. But the marketing, I have a bit of an issue with. What they've done really well... Uh, for the industry is, you know, Quiet Light and other firms like us have been trying to raise awareness of the sellability of uh, FBA businesses or FBA brands. Um, And they come along, you know, nearly a billion dollar valuation. Now everybody knows that you can sell it and the multiples have climbed. There was a time when I would only list something if it's an FBA business at a maximum of 2.74 and then it would round down to 2.7 online. Now, we can list them for what they're really worth. These are not brands that are gonna completely implode. Amazon's not gonna take um, them all in-house. Amazon's not gonna sell you know, all of their own brands and not let other people sell on their platform. That's just not gonna happen. They have shareholders that uh, make a lot of money from um, uh, third-party, third-party sellers.
0: Well, it, let, let's talk more about what the what the terms are like and what they've done to the overall market. But I, I, I want to say one other detail. I, of course, know about the the aggregator phenomenon or or trend or whatever. I didn't realize just how manic it got. So, just coincidentally, yesterday the inside the the um, the information the, that uh, tech ma- um, news website. Did a story on the aggregator ecosystem, and they talked about. Uh, here, here's just a quote from the article: During the mania of 2021, so just last year, Amazon third-party businesses were sometimes selling for for up to four to five times earnings, before, or four, four to five times EBITDA. Uh, and then they talk about how how much that's g- g- has come down or will come down, and that's really going to be the meat of our conversation here, Joe. But they they in then they follow it up with the examples of some of the um the conferences where where aggregators and prospective sellers would get together the the mm. Tesla giveaway for referrals there was some mm. there was some aggregator that if you just referred yeah. them a business that they ultimately buyer they buy, ultimately would buy they'd give you a Tesla i mean yes. just crazy stuff that is just like you know you know, alarm bells should be ringing in everyone's mind. I didn't realize it was that white hot. What, what did you, what is some of the crazy, I mean, do you agree with that characterization that it just felt kind of manic last year? Yeah,
1: yeah, quite, Our business, we only sold 30% of our transactions to aggregators in 2021, but we grew by 85% last year. Um, we had an average of 3.74 offers on every listing that we put out so there was a mania for all things digital you know and and we're not an e-commerce business broker solely we sell content and right. SaaS and some service agencies as well but probably 55 to 60 percent of our transactions were e-commerce and of those probably 70 percent were majority fba brands and so yeah it, it there was definitely a mania there are pop-up, and I want to call them pop-up because they just imploded, pop-up business brokers that focus solely on selling directly to aggregators and only aggregators. Well, they're out of business because that was a very bad business model. Um, But yeah, it's been a frenzy to the point where we had to hire somebody to uh, just be the person that aggregators would talk to and get, a, you know, get it all organized. And that way we could report anytime an aggregator makes an offer, everybody would have access to a report that would talk about the previous offers that that aggregator made, how they behaved in due diligence, what the deal structure was, and if they are currently or uh, are going to be blacklisted in the next 24 hours because of what they did. And we've had some that have had to be blacklisted because they behaved very poorly in due diligence.
0: Yeah. And so often in, a, in, in an environment like this, just a, a land grab or a gold rush, there's going to be some bad actors. So there are among yeah. the, in the aggregator community, there are some yeah, bad there
1: actors. There are. And, and, and when I say what I said about Thracia, they're not. They're not bad right. actors. Right. Their, their marketing materials are, are bullshit, as are most of the aggregators when they're giving away a Tesla. Sorry if I'm swearing here. Um, just trying to be real. Um The whole, the whole promotion, you know, if you, if you think about it, I know that the audience are buyers, but if you think about this from a seller standpoint and go, all right, should I sell directly to this aggregator and avoid the broker fee? Or should I hire a broker to help me get maximum value for the business? The brokers working on your behalf to make sure you get maximum value for the business. The aggregators job is to buy your business for as little as possible on the most favorable terms for them. Why in the world would you take your greatest asset that's worth the most uh, you know net worth that you have and risk it in selling it directly to an aggregator i i it's 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 my cross to bear that I have to try to get this out there. I know that's not the audience but it's it's
0: a frustration that i personally have It's not unlike the the uh, situation in um residential real estate with eye buying where the pitch of the, uh, and, uh, and a big eye buyer is Circumvent the broker, quick to close, um, you know, et cetera. So if you just need to unload your house quickly, uh, we'll give you a fair market offer and we'll close in you know X number of days. Leaving the agents to scramble and demonstrate where they add value, which is that they're they're working for you, the the owner of the house, to optimize the the sale price that you get for your house. So it's it, it it's similar. Now, iBuying is based; the pricing is based on an algorithm, supposedly. Thrasio is not doing that, although they're they're pro- and the aggregators are not doing that. So I don't mean to. The technology component might be different, um, but kind of the the the, the two um, value propositions that the se- that the seller of the business or the seller of the home are considering, kind of those competing value propositions feel similar. Um, Joe, I want to just go back um, and to your history lesson there for a sec, which was great. You talked about how the the um, Commerce 101 guy or 101 Commerce, RJ, yeah. mm-hmm. said, I'm, I'm going to buy these businesses. I'm not even going to log in to any of them. Uh, one of the, the other criticisms that I've heard of aggregators is that, you know, in a typical roll-up or business where you're assembling a fragmented industry and, you know, um, developing systems that that go across all of the different businesses, synergies to use a word that nobody likes, but you really are. You know, I mean, the, your synergies is really part of the value proposition of your entire rollup. Um, and and I just keep hearing and in Thrasio, I actually, I hear this about Thrasio specifically that they that they don't do that. As you said, they just buy these completely disjointed businesses, as opposed to let's say a Bill Alessandro who who he's building a business that is in a particular niche. So it's you know pet products. And lotions and potions, as he calls it, Um, and so you can. It just makes a lot more sense that there would be, you know, if you're going to be a a serial buyer, a serial buyer of e-commerce businesses, that they would, that they'd all be in the same category, for example. And it just doesn't seem like the aggregators have done that. Um, How, where was the value add other than multiple arbitrage that that these guys um, sought to 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 achieve? If they're not even, if he's bragging about not even logging into any of the businesses that he's acquiring. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the multiple
1: arbitrage is what it is. Uh, and then ideally, you know, the goal is to get big enough to go public and that's where they make them the real money. Um, and that's all going to change, right? Uh, Thracio and all of the other big players are now niching down. Um, I took some notes here. I had a call with Deanna on our team who deals directly with the aggregators before we started recording. And let's see, there's two or three aggregators that have now, com- you know, completely changed up their model. In fact, we had some aggregators walk away after the Thrasio deal at the news that they're laying off 50% of their workforce or whatever the number is, three or four of our deals fell apart because mm-hmm. the lending partners behind the aggregators or there's only four of them are three or four of them. And so they're all in a panic and saying, look, aggregator, A, B, C, D, no more, just buy whatever you want. You got a niche down. And so there's an aggregator that would buy uh everything that was a consumable, ingestible, or a topical and so on and so forth, that was their niche. They're shifting and niching down to women's only products. So if it's an ingestible, if it's a topical, anything like it's just for women, that's incredibly niche oriented. And I think that when 101 started or Thrust started, the idea was that well, we we can't niche down because we're not gonna be able to buy as many. We're not gonna be able to grow and scale at the same level, and now people are going, okay, we don't wanna actually scale at the same level that Thrasio did. We can be very successful niching down. And instead of buying, you know, 10, $250,000 businesses, let's just buy, you know, one $2.5 million business and, and, you know, make wise purchases that are in the same niche instead of just buy whatever. And that's already happening, we're seeing that happen. Uh, to a great deal, and I think that eventually it's going to happen with Thrust too. They're going to start selling stuff off and try to niche down a little bit, or they'll—they've got so many different categories. They're just going to um, sort of compartmentalize them and maybe stick to, to, to three or four or five.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're you're talking about the the go forward strategy for some of these aggregators is going to be to niche down and unload some of the businesses that they've acquired. We talked about how, how crazy things got up into, through, into 2021. Um, we talked about how your the multiple that you were selling e-commerce businesses for before things got so hot and it, was, it became such a popular acquisition category was, what did you say, 2.74 was, was that, the going multiple? That was, the, that, was the, that was on the high side, yeah. That was on the high side. And so then, it got, according to the, the information yesterday, four and five became the norm. Is that, is that, does that reflect what, what Quietly yeah. would sell at? Yes. Four and
1: five. Well, you've got to be careful with the multiples because you know, the four and five, does it include or exclude inventory? It, yeah. Everybody but website closers um, excludes inventory. They include it in their multiples. So you just got to, anytime time a buyer's looking at multiples, just determine whether or not it includes or excludes inventory. But four to five, uh, sure. But it depends upon the size of the business and the niche and how many SKUs they've got and the growth trends and all that stuff too.
0: Okay. Okay. But if you kind of apples to apples, it it feels like going from 2.74 to four or five, that's a 50 to 100% or 50 to 80% rise in prices of e commerce businesses. In mm-hmm. how many years? The year, your 2.74 number, that was what, 2017, 2018? Yeah, four years or so. Yeah. In four years. Okay. And so while all these aggregators have been out there and just making things so white hot and so competitive, um, what are you said some. What, 30% of Quiet Light sales were yeah. to aggregators? What, are, what have the lone individual acquisition entrepreneurs like my audience been doing, or how are they competing against these guys? They're just being good people, right? Being they've nice, got, like you, we said at the top. Yeah,
1: they've got the right to, to look at our listings. See, one of the things that we don't do when we list something is we don't just send it out to the aggregators it, it the aggregators some of the other firms and i'm not going to name any names but they they'll create a listing and they'll send it out to the aggregators only for a mm-hmm. week or two and give the aggregators the first right to look at them mm-hmm. um, we don't do that ours go to the public and the aggregators are part of the public in our view they're on our list they'll get it when everybody else gets it and so that gives, you know, your audience, Walker's audience, an opportunity to, to buy it and compete along the same lines as, as the aggregator. And s- sometimes people just don't like what the aggregators, a- aggregators have to say and the offers that they thought were going to be all cash from them are technically not. And so they go with the other folks.
0: Yeah, yeah. But it has, I assume it's made it much harder for acquisition entrepreneurs. I mean, if nothing else, prices have gone up. Yeah, (laughs) prices have gone up um, because people are
1: competing for it, right? So 3.7 offers for every listing, it's going to drive the price up. I just did a podcast this morning where it was listed, the business was listing and Walker was the advising broker, was listed at 1.35. There were only two offers. It sold at 1.55, 10 days into due diligence. The person, the company from the UK that didn't, it was an aggregator that didn't get the uh, LOI, reached out to Walker and said, okay, we'll double our price, double our price. So they went from like 1.3 to 2.6. And you know, of course the owner of the business is like, "Eh, okay, no, we're just gonna stick with what we have. And I talked, I interviewed him, I'm like, wow, why didn't you go for that money grab? He's like, we didn't feel comfortable with, you know, some of the things that they were saying, we weren't Mm -hmm. confident they were actually going to close. Um, we're getting above asking price by a couple hundred thousand dollars and we're closing quickly it closed in 37 days Um, no we like who we have and we're gonna do the right thing and stick with them we signed a letter of intent and by the way this is something that buyers should pay attention to typically when you do a deal with quietly or anybody else or even directly the letter of intent often says it's non-binding letter of intent fully contingent on due diligence and a further detailed asset purchase agreement as a buyer, you might want to make it not non-binding, that it's binding contingent on due diligence and a further detailed asset purchase agreement. That way, when that Yahoo aggregator comes in after and tries to sweep in and steal it for an extra half a million or a million, you know, you're still in a good, strong position.
0: Mm-hmm. And our sellers, um, will sellers tolerate that? Yeah, they will. Okay. Okay. They will. Being in a yeah, non-binding, they're, they're I mean, being, a letter, excuse me, being in a binding in another way? They're signing a letter of intent with the
1: purpose of selling to who they signed the letter of intent with. Right. So we talked about my my buddy now and clients and Ramon Van Meer, who we're going to get on this show. Um, <laughs> Ramon's a perfect example of that. I had his, we, we originally listed his business for $5 million or so, right? And we were under letter of intent with a guy named Matt, great guy. He'd bought four other businesses from Quiet Light. And um, I'm at a funeral on a Saturday down in Georgia. I'm driving home and Ramon calls me. And I go, this can't be good. Nobody calls me on a Saturday. And he tells me that revenue, uh, you know, he gets his revenue in arrears and whatnot. And it, his revenue grew to the point where he was netting $300,000 a month. That's projected down 3.6 million a year. He's not going to sell the business for 5 million bucks. He's like, Joe, I can't do this. I have Victor, my son, I've got to really do this. And he's like, I I, I want to pull out a letter of intent. I said, well, if I was in your shoes, I would too. (laughs) Like, let's do the math and I'm driving down the road and we figured it was going to be worth eight or nine million if he just waited six months. And so I made a very difficult call Monday morning to Matt who blew a gasket, right? Talked about suing Ramon and all this other stuff. He had no legs to stand on whatsoever. Uh, It took him a couple of days to cool down and... Um, He settled down and he realized that it was in Ramon's best interest to do what he was doing, but he was sad that he was losing out on that opportunity. Uh, Any new letters of intent that Matt has signed since then have that binding aspect to it. Matt is now an aggregator. He owns a company called Profound Commerce down in Austin, Texas. Matt's a really good guy. And anytime I was on a call with Matt and competing buyers, Matt usually won because he's a really nice guy. Mm -hmm. Um, And... They raised, you know, I think the number was 50, Matt, raised $53 million in uh, Q4 last year. And he's going to be a smart aggregator. He's going to buy the right businesses. He's not going to buy a, a billion when he can buy a million, right? He's going to buy good businesses that are larger, easy to manage, and they're good product managers. Not uh, They're not um, acquiring businesses and then acquiring staff uh, to, to, to run them and train them.
0: Well, Joe, them. you're... You're talking about him and, and, and you've mentioned other aggregators that you're talking about them in in a kind of the indefinite sense as if they're not going anywhere. Uh, so Rocky waters for the aggregators right now, but the concept isn't going away. So, so, you know, Thrasio's making the news, Thrasio's laying people off. And because it was the best known aggregator, everybody, including me, are like, okay, well, what does this mean for aggregators overall? Is the whole model, is the whole model not sustainable? Um, and, and then you've got the bad actors, and so they'll be shaken out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, make a prognostication about just aggregator in general. You, you see the category surviving, just getting stronger, maybe a little less ambitious, a little, little more disciplined. Yeah,
1: I see the category surviving, because it makes sense when you just put it on paper. Um, They're going to just niche down. They're not going to just buy anything nilly-willy. They're just going to get very specific on what they buy and have very specific criteria. And they're going to be more patient. They're not going to rush to buy 25 businesses. They're going to be more patient with it. Uh, And I know this is true because new aggregators are, are still popping up. Right, There are three that contacted us in the last 30 days, and that's after the news mm. about Thrasio. So they're still raising funds, or we're, we're in the process and still got it raised and still got it pledged to them. They're just going to be smarter about it, like Profound Commerce. Uh, and even the existing ones are already selling off brands that don't fit with the uh, vision that they are trying to now have. Um, And they're just going to be a little bit more patient, a little bit more specific, a little bit more compliant um, and a little less top heavy in staff uh, and make sure they don't make the same mistakes that Thrasio made. Uh, Thrasio will survive. I believe they will survive. They're not going to be in the same um, uh, position, right? They're not going to go public anytime soon, but they'll survive and they're teaching lessons to all the other aggregators how to, um, and, and and I mean this in the kindest way, in case Carlos is listening to not screw up like
0: Thrasio did. <laughs> so given the, this kind of, um, this chastening that the aggregators are, are experiencing right now, um, so will, will the multiples that have gone up so much come back, uh, pull back a little bit? And does this, does this herald a good buying um, window next 12 or 24 months for my audience, for the individual acquisition entrepreneur?
1: Yeah, I think so, but it's not just because of the uh, aggregator uh, 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 refocusing, right? Not implosion, refocusing. It's not just because of that. It's because of the stock market. It's because of the potential looming recession um, that everybody's concerned about. Um, I think multiples will come down for a variety of reasons, even supply chain issues. If you think about an entrepreneur that has bootstrapped a business and is just keeping up with working capital requirements to maintain inventory and they're struggling. The inventory's cost is going up, the container costs are going up, and they're taking less cash out of the business. They're getting burnt out, frustrated, yeah. and tired, and just want to move on. Whereas, yeah. you know, nine months ago, they would have, you know, demanded a four time multiple. Now they'd be like, please, three times. Can you just get me three times? Wow. So it's going to happen. Really? It's it's not happening yet, but I guarantee it's going to happen. Because a lot of the times, no matter how much I preach, no matter how much Walker preaches on the sell side and tries to teach and educate, that you train for your exit. You don't just wake up and decide to sell your business. Um, We, as entrepreneurs, don't listen. We think we're (laughs) going to run these businesses forever and we just wake up and decide to sell because we're tired and burned out. In in this situation, you're going to wake up and decide to sell. I think a lot of entrepreneurs just can't, handle the struggle anymore and will just want to exit and they'll be willing to exit for less because of the stress and strain of cash flow because of the market the stock market the real estate market the supply chain challenges that are not going away yet or anytime soon Uh, and and yes because there'll be less competition because the aggregators are not going to buy as much all of
0: it's going to bring multiples down all of it. You know, it's just it, all those headwinds that you're talking about for e-commerce. It's so striking because e-commerce was just so hot. And aside from the aggregators, just during COVID, it was just the hottest thing. Uh, I mean, everybody, again, forget the aggregators. Every every individual acquisition entrepreneur wanted to buy an e-commerce business. E-commerce. Uh, they still do. Why tiny little have? e-commerce businesses were, were just going crazy. Um, but, you know, the return to pre-pandemic spending habits and then all these other headwinds, I mean, you know, prices are going to come down across every asset class. Um, in
1: my view, though, the, well, they're not going to come down to what they were in 2018. The multiples won't trade no. that much. I think, though, what, what's, what may happen is that the multiples will, will come down, I believe, but the deal structures will also, also be more favorable to the buyers, right? Because the aggregators, again, even though they say we'll pay all cash and close in 30 days, they never paid all cash or 99 yeah. times out of 100, they didn't. And so the buyers, the sellers of these FBA businesses became more familiar with earnouts, with stability payments, with seller notes, seller notes on inventory and all these different things, and, and therefore are getting more comfortable with them. Anytime over the last decade, when I speak to a seller, um, I, and, I, and, I, and I talk about those things, are you willing to you know, accept any of those things? No, of course not. And then when they get to know their buyer, they get a little bit more flexible right? Seller notes can actually be very good for a seller because as long as it's secured and they believe in the buyer, it means they've got some steady income for a while after they sold their business. Because most of the people that are selling their businesses are not set up financially for life, Mm -hmm. right? It's a nice exit. It's a $500,000 exit. They're not set up financially for life. They still need to earn a living. And so if you as a buyer make an offer that is, you know, 350,000 in cash and $50,000 a year for the next three years at a fair interest rate, personally secured, um, then they're more likely to take it. It's not a terrible deal. Matt at Profound Commerce bought Mike Jackness's business, color it, Mike goes all over podcasts. I've talked about it, he's talked about it. Mike did a seller note on the inventory, and six months in, he extended the seller note on the inventory because he kind of liked getting the monthly payments. It's a weird thing. But they also liked and trusted each other very much.
0: And is there a uh, a seller note percentage that's standard in e in commerce? In the in the kind of offline world, it's ten to fifteen percent. Is that yeah,
1: topside twenty five. Yeah, you're in that in that ten to twenty five percent, right? The, so the okay. sellers are not banks, right? They shouldn't right. be funding your entire exit. Right. Um, the, the 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 biggest seller note I've I've ever seen in transactions that I've done, and I've done a lot, uh, was fifty percent. And it just blew my mind it's happened twice one was because the seller and the buyer acted like long lost sisters and absolutely fell in love with each other and it just <laughs> it was incredible the the buyer made an offer and she's like that's perfect i'm stepping into retirement i'll have that residual income until my as my portfolio grows right it worked for her and the other was a mom of four that had a uh, uh a blog about coupon cutting and mm-hmm. uh you know her husband worked full time and she was supposed to be working very part time while raising four children. And she ended up working 20 hours a week and it was too much. Uh, and she's making $100,000 a year. It was just, honestly, it was just too much. So she sold it and did a 50% selling note on that too. Then that was a 12 month, 12 month 50% selling mm-hmm. note. But that's the most 10, 10 to 25%, I think, is, is comfortable. The, the, I think the place where buyers can get the most um, seller note is on the inventory right so if you're buying a business for a million dollars and there's a two hundred thousand dollars of inventory offer a seller note on the inventory at the very least like if you're a cash buyer if you're getting 25 percent seller note on the business but you're buying the inventory ask for a six-month seller note on the inventory and you know with a with a with a 60-day standby that means it's really you know, uh, uh, 120 uh, six months. It's it's what's it's eight months, right? Because you're not going to make that first payment. It allows you to get some you know in, some money in the bank account to pay for the seller note and pay for the inventory. It's short. Buyers are, the, the shorter it is, the more buyers are com- the more sellers are comfortable with it.
0: Joe, you keep mentioning FBA businesses specifically. So is is, is should our conversation be con confined to that definition of e-commerce businesses or, or what, about, what about non-FBA, yeah, just general that's, e-commerce? DTC that's where businesses. this aggregator
1: roll-up started with, with FBA businesses. Yeah. Um, yeah. There are now uh, SaaS-specific aggregators and content-specific aggregators. There aren't really aggregators that have come out of the woodworks to buy just D2C brands that are non-FBA that hmm. I know of. Deanna probably has a few on the list, but they're not as uh, popular for some reason, it, which is a shame. I think they'd be
0: more popular. I mean, they're, they're more it, robust businesses. They're not, exactly, they don't have the platform it, risk. <laughs>
1: exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, you know, uh, they're probably out there. I just can't name any off the top of my head and there's probably someone, around, we've got like 120 aggregators on our list now. And there's probably, you know, a
0: few in there that are just trying to buy Shopify stores. Yeah. they would be, the, yeah. they would be the smarter ones, my opinion. okay you hear that audience there's the opportunity and speaking of which I wanted to close Joe with just any other general tips you've already given a lot um, but any like if you were talking to somebody who you know they they thought they were going to spend a million two million dollars on a business in the next 12 to 18 months and they were maybe interested in e-commerce anything that you might tell them anything come to mind don't reinvent the wheel after you buy it it's already working don't go in and change things
1: Um, A perfect example, there's two pieces of advice that I want to give out here, but that's the first one. So buy the business and just sit on it for the first 90 days and learn everything you can about that business. When I sold my business, Will, um, I sold it in November of 2012. The best time for that business, it was a supplement brand. The best time was Q1, right? My buyer tripled the ad spend, right? I was spending 20,000 a month. He tripled it in Q1, went to $60,000 with no experience in Google AdWords. Came back to me in June of 2012 and said, hey, look, I've kind of screwed up. Would you be interested in buying back into the business? And of course I said, yes, 51%. He goes, well, that would be me working for you. I said, yes, you screwed it up. He ended up keeping the business and did okay. Um, But definitely don't fix something that's not broken another example quiet light just bought bought a brand it's not a it's not a it's not a brand it's a it's a lead generation business okay and it and we used to we we used to get referrals from this company hmm. we bought it yeah. 30 days after we bought it our cmo changed pay per click companies and so for like a week and a half we got zero referrals like we invented, we, we reinvented the wheel. We shouldn't have, yeah. we should have sat yeah. on it. Um, the other piece of advice would come from somebody that I mention often when I'm doing podcasts. It's my mentor, one of them, is a guy named Uncle Walter, Walter Abbott. It's my wife's uncle, I call him Uncle Walter. Um, I was out golfing with him a decade ago. And he gave me advice, which was as an entrepreneur, You should always have a line of credit set up wherever you can, either through your investment partners, a HELOC, meaning a home equity line of credit, or with your bank if your business is established. Get a line of credit set up because you will need it someday. I didn't take his advice, Will. And in 2012, I sold my business, and I wanted to buy a business that was much larger than the little content site that I bought. And I filed my taxes in uh, april of 2012 and then i went to my bank to set up a a a heloc and to get that line of credit set up and they they were a local bank and i had a great relationship with them but you know pat said joe uh, you don't you don't have any income i'd love to help you but you don't have any income i can't give you a heloc (laughs) i had you know like a million dollars of equity in my house more than that in my investments but of course i didn't want to take it out because the market had crashed but i couldn't do anything because i didn't take walter's advice and set up a line of credit so set up a line of uh, a line of credit number 1 number 2 or number 1 and number 2 and number 1 just don't change anything immediately after buying the business you're not smarter than the guy that bootstrapped it and built it and is able to sell it learn from them and then grow it wait 90 days and then then add your touches to it
0: and Joe, one of the things on that topic about just the transition period um, that a lot of my guests experience and, and want to talk about is how you manage the team um, when when you come in as the new owner uh, for e-commerce businesses. What what is the team size for? Um, I guess we'll have to we'll have to frame it for like a million dollar business. Um, I mean, let me put it this way. When is there a team, like what level of revenue does an e-commerce business have to hit before there starts to be a team? I assume many of your businesses transact and it's just the owner.
1: Yeah, like you said, it depends greatly on the size. So if it's a, if, if it's selling for a million dollars, right, it's probably in the $250,000 to $350,000 discretionary earnings range. Right. Uh, odds are their team is maybe a husband and wife team, a couple of business partners and they do everything. Or it's one owner and a VA, or two, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the the VAs would transfer with the sale. If um, if it's a, a larger business like Syed Syed it was a multi-million dollar business. He had a team of like five or six people that were essential to the business. So the buyer absolutely wanted them to stick around, and yeah. Sayed cared about them, so he wanted them to transfer. So our, our average transaction size last year was about $1.8 million, and
0: the team may consist of two or three VAs at that size. Okay, that's great. That's really helpful. Great, Joe. Give us that URL one more time where people can get the, the uh, Exitpreneur playbook. Yes, uh, exitpreneur.io forward slash acquiring minds. There it is. Very good. And how can people reach out to you personally, Joe?
1: Uh, they can hit me up at uh, joe at quietlight.com or uh, that's probably the best place I want to say LinkedIn but it's I don't check it every day so uh, Joe at quietlightcom
0: right and quietlightcom of course um, everybody goes subscribe to uh, get new listings there it is uh, as I said at the top really considered the the gold standard you guys the the listings that you um, have for sale are, are curated I mean that's all that's often the word that I hear people say about quiet light that it's a really it's a curated um pool of listings that you can go and go there and feel, feel confident that they're going to be a quality business for sale. Is that fair? That is
1: fair. Absolutely true. We put a lot of work into the packages to answer all of the buyers' questions before they think to ask them so that it streamlines the process from listing uh, to LOI to closing. As far as being on the hunt for businesses, though, if people are, if they don't already know about Centurica's marketplace, mm-hmm. they should. So, mm-hmm. centurica.com. There's a marketplace tab where they can subscribe to new listing alerts from all of the online business brokerage firms that Centurica trusts or works with. Um, and they can get very specific there. If they only want to do SBA, they check a box that says SBA and they'll only get fed SBA listings. If they only want SaaS businesses, they'll only get SaaS businesses because it's a ton of work, um, trying to buy a business when you're competing against so many people and you're looking at FE International website, Closures, Empire Flippers, Acquisition Station and a dozen others. Um, yeah, what, that's what a great point. Chris and now Nate, who just bought it over there, they've done a great job streamlining that process for buyers. And of course,
0: they're doing it because they want you to know who they are, because they're a great due diligence firm as well. Sure. Yeah. No, that's a great tip and trick, everybody. Yeah. And what they fundamentally do is 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 uh, due diligence for e-commerce and also SaaS and basically any all manner of digital businesses, correct? Yep. Exactly. Cool. Yep. Great. Joe Valley of Quiet Light, thank you very much for your time and thoughts, sir. This has been great. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Will.